Welcome to Victorian Samplings, the podcast that speaks with artists, curators, scholars, and crafters about Victorian objects and the stories they tell. I'm Vanessa Warren, and in this episode, we're exploring intimate histories. Clothing, jewelry, everyday household objects, they preserve information about their owners, about the work they did or the pleasures they pursued, about their values, relationships, and lived experience. With the help of this episode's guests, scholar Heather Hind, textile conservator Jackie Hyman, and curator Kyle McPhail, we discover what a broken bracelet, a vibrant wallpaper, and a surprisingly dirty frock coat reveal about their owners. We begin with Jesse Cron's conversation with Heather Hind, and we hope that you'll enjoy listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. joined today by Dr. Heather Hind, a digital learning developer at the University of Exeter and postgraduate representative for the British Association of Victorian Studies. Today we'll be discussing Heather's research on hair work and Victorian culture. Thanks for joining me today, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. You have an article in the spring 2020 issue of Victorian Review about hair jewelry, and in it you analyze one specific piece with a broken plait in the Bronte Parsonage Museum's collection. Could you describe it for us and could you explain what interests you about the piece? Yes, so this is a multi-strand hair bracelet of six strands, two different kinds of plait alternating across it that was said to have belonged to Charlotte Bronte, but the source of the hair is, well, unknown, at least as far as I could um, find out in terms of its provenance. But I would say that its shade looks most like that in Anne Bronte's named pieces. It's kind of a very dark golden colour, maybe uh, tarnished a little bit with age, a kind of bronzy gold colour in the clasp. Um, And one of the strands is broken and kind of away from the rest and has frayed a bit at the end. A few years ago when I went to the Bronte Parsonage Museum, it was the first time that I'd been to a museum specifically to look at hair work for my uh, PhD research and I didn't quite know what to expect but I had an idea that there might just be all of these beautiful, pristine, shiny pieces of hair work waiting for me. And what I actually found were all of these, or at least some slightly tarnished, broken, crumpled, partially fixed pieces of hair work. And so that is kind of what got me thinking about this relationship between hair work, connection, breakage, and what that would kind of mean for an object that's supposed to be enduring and about the eternity of a relationship. This kind of came from, I guess, my expectations as a student, very new to this kind of research and the reality of what I found. Again, I didn't know what to expect in terms of the hair work I was going to look at, but also in terms of how I would be looking at it and what I would be allowed to do with it. As you might expect, you know, you get given the museum gloves, the stuff comes out to you in an archive box. And all of these pieces of hair work were also in kind of plastic packets or folded, you know, inside the acid-free tissue paper. There was so much denying my touch of those objects. And again, for, for something that I think is partly about touch and about feeling close to that person who donated the hair, about wearing it, displaying it and kind of turning it over. I came across all of these barriers to doing that, that then it almost highlighted the importance of touching the hair and of getting close to it by the fact that I couldn't always do that with these objects. 
In your essay, you propose that hair work materializes ideas about connections between people living or deceased, and that wear and breakage on hair jewelry create anxieties about disconnection. Can you tell me more about that? I guess I was thinking about what might motivate somebody to make or commission a piece of hair work. It might be that somebody wanted to feel close to someone who they were expecting to be separated from in some way, whether that was distance, age, death, you know, these things aren't necessarily pieces of mourning jewellery, but there's always some sort of, I think, distance encoded into them because they are trying to keep that person close. So I think there's a contradiction at the heart of hair work that all of these objects speak to. I think also in terms of trying to memorialise an individual by taking a person's hair or even a family's hair and working it in to one piece, bringing several people together, because these objects are still then separated from the person. There's then an anxiety about identity and how far can these objects represent a person, and especially all of the very frustratingly anonymous pieces of hair work I found in museums with, you know, little provenance or no inscription or no corresponding letter or label to go with them. So all these things that I think hair work is trying to achieve, closeness and proximity, uh, identity, uh, sense of connection to people are all also things that are kind of anxieties of hair work because there's only an extent to which it can kind of smooth over some of those issues. So you've raised some questions already about preservation and provenance, what lasts, what endures, what we keep in museum collections and how we allow people to engage with or interact with a piece once it's in a collection. What do we know already about how these pieces are made and what do we do with pieces like these when we don't know who the hair belonged to? That's a really good question. (laughs) It's really difficult. Um, In my case, I found myself in my PhD thesis speculating quite a lot. You know, some of the things like, for example, the pieces of hair work in the Bronte Parsonage Museum, a lot of them at least do have letters and things and kind of a record of who they were at some point kind of traded between, sold to. That means that it is highly likely these were at least owned by the Bronte family at some point. And it's the same for collections like the Armstrong Browning Library, where these objects have been collected because there is a clear link to the Brownings. The more challenging ones are things like uh, regional and county museums and historic houses where they have bits of hair work that are perhaps of that area. But in terms of the person that made them, the person that owned them, it's really difficult to find out. Some pieces do have at least a name written on them. Often, you know, uh, if it's morning jewellery, a date that they died. But I just found myself speculating a lot. I mean, to give an example, one of the ones I found really interesting was in the um, uh, Mercer Gallery in Harrogate in the UK. And it's a bracelet that has kind of had most of its hair worn away from it. It was around a a kind of mould that was still in the bracelet. So the hair is kind of mostly frayed and totally come away from the bracelet. But on either end joining it are two metal ends that have the names Alfred and Clara inscribed on them. So I've got two names. (laughs) I know that this maybe is Alfred or Clara's hair, but in terms of what their relationship is, I mean, how do you know? Maybe they were married, maybe they were engaged. They could be brother and sister. They could be friends who just wanted some, you know, commemorative thing. So I guess you have to speculate in terms of a probable relationship. That can still tell you things. I think it can still tell you things about the kind of cultural import of hair work. But you do, you kind of get more questions raised by looking at some of these objects and you get answered. But I think that's that's been part of its appeal for me when I've been looking at it. Most of us might think of human hair as being best preserved when it hasn't been shaped, like hair we might find in a grave. 
Um, I'm wondering if denying touch in the way that you've described here might interfere with this process of speculation or the ways that we honor the people who made the pieces and their wishes. And I wonder how our project changes when we can't touch the hair, especially when that's considered best practice in museum contexts. Yeah, I think on the point on locks of hair that haven't been worked into anything, I definitely do find those even more difficult to deal with, because at least with a piece of hair work, I can say this is attesting to a relationship of some kind, or even a commercial endeavour some kind, if it's, you know, a piece of hair work that was maybe made by a jeweller just to be sold for fashion. But with a lock of hair, they seem to be so full of meaning and to have such an authenticity to them, that maybe it, at least, you know, to our eyes, very elaborately worked piece of hair doesn't because it's not that honest simple genuine piece of hair that's just been kept as you say and it's kind of natural uh, pure form but I can think of lots of examples of Victorian poetry in particular that would kind of challenge that and talk about locks of hair being traded as deceitful tokens um, Tennyson calls them golden lies that can be so easily therefore played upon for that apparent worth or that apparent purity in a way something that's been worked into a piece of hair work has a a kind of framed purpose to it it's kind of trying to tell you something about what that hair meant in a way that a lock of hair might do much more slyly it sounds like an unworked lock of hair is typically a more secretive artifact whereas a piece that's been worked is meant to be shown in public Yeah, that's a very good point. Lots of the locks of hair I've found have been inside letters or kept in family collections. Oh, there was a really good example of some hair that I found in the Harry Ransom Center in Texas. I think it was cut by Sarah Coleridge and it was her husband's hair cut from around his left nipple (laughs) so I think it said on his deathbed if I'm remembering uh, rightly but keeping hair of her dead husband from an intimate area I don't know what that was about to be honest but that seemed like a really intimate personal reason behind keeping that kind of lock of hair as well as the idea of keeping hair like locks in a kind of private place maybe you know pressed within a book kept within a letter kind of tucked away in a way that hair work as you say was that was displayed was worn is there anything more that you can say about where on the bracelet that we talked about earlier what's intact what's broken and what you've speculated about the history of the person who may have worn the bracelet yes so the bracelet that um of belong to Charlotte Bronte that I've that I've mentioned earlier there's just the one strand that's broken and coming away from the bracelet and has kind of started to unravel at the end and kind of splay out like the end of a plait wood obviously I've no idea how it came to be broken I think when you find broken hair work it becomes more likely that it was worn and worn regularly There are some pieces I've found that in museums that are still in the box that were just maybe never worn that you can kind of tell because anyone with long hair knows you get split ends, it breaks, it rubs, it gets dry. So you can kind of tell when hair work has been worn, even if it's been worn lightly, there will be kind of strands that come away that kind of get itchy and prickly along the length of the bracelet or the necklace or whatever it is. So I think this bracelet was worn regularly. So that says something about the, I guess, the importance of it. Potentially also, though, I will say the ordinariness of hair work. Some of the pieces, I think there's a correlation between how elaborately worked some of the things I've seen are and how pristine they are. So in a way, maybe making something that's then, you know, studded with rubies and has all this gold in it means that it's not something that you wear every day and think about that particular 
a loved one. Whereas something like this, which is six relatively simple plaits or braids of hair, just joined with a simple clasp with a safety chain. There's something much more ordinary and kind of accessible about it, like a, you know, a well-loved t-shirt versus that dress that you just wear to, you know, weddings every three years. Yeah. There's something much more, I don't know how to explain it, something I find much more endearing about it because it's had that sign of use and maybe even, you know, been pulled at some point. Some of the other pieces uh, in the Bronte collection they've broken and then they've been knotted as though I don't know whether that again was a Bronte or a subsequent owner or maybe even whoever it was at some point but it's kind of been patched up there's some sense that they wanted to preserve that piece of hair work and keep keep wearing it keep using it to wrap up do you have any final thoughts on what hair jewelry can teach us about Victorian culture or society Um, I think there are some common misconceptions that maybe hair work has fed into, but that it can also dispel, particularly to do with Victorians and mourning. So the idea that the Victorians, you know, were permanently in mourning, wore black all the time um, and were really ostentatious with it. I mean, they were in in some decades. But not all hair work is mourning jewellery. It kind of has all become mourning jewellery because the donors of the hair all inevitably died. Um, And so I think a lot of hair jewellery was made during a person's lifetime, but then was worn as mourning jewellery later, or at least, you know, came to be that token of mourning somehow. So I think that's that's a kind of common misconception that that it's fed in a roundabout way. I don't know whether I'd say it teaches us something about the, I guess, Victorian contradictions, that it could be something so deeply personal and intimate, and yet a fashion accessory that was worn and that it could so encode somebody's identity and their relationships and their deep effective life and yet also be this thing that in our hands is anonymous and we don't understand and we're trying to kind of grasp all of those meanings that are somehow in it but that we can't access so for me it's really just it's been a big contradiction to study it kind of does one thing to do with love and permanence at the same time as it expresses ideas of of distance and anxiety so I think it helps us to understand how complicated it is to look at the Victorians and how difficult it is to say the Victorians were like this or thought this or went about things this way that there's anxiety and desire kind of coded into everything Uh, it's always kind of pulling both ways. Thanks so much for joining me today, Heather. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you to Heather Hind and to Jesse Cron for that conversation. We continue our exploration of objects that bear traces of wear by visiting with textile conservator Jackie Hyman. I spoke to Jackie from her studio with the tools of her trade surrounding her. I began by asking her to introduce herself. Hi, I'm, I'm Jackie, Jackie Hyman, and I work as a freelance textile conservator. I would class myself as a slightly weird person that I'm actually doing the profession, uh, undertaking the profession that I decided at the age of 15. I was let loose in a textile store in my local museum And the very first job they asked me to do was to take some old samplers out of their frames. I thought, oh, I'm enjoying this. And I'd always sewn all my life. Um, I'm one of four sisters, so my mother taught us to sew. My grandmother taught me to sew as well. And and she'd actually was a very, very accomplished needlewoman. She'd won a scholarship to the Royal School of Needlework. 
in London. So she taught me as a child to embroider and every school holiday was, well, what are we going to embroider this holiday? What are we going to knit? That sort of thing. Then at school, I got called up in front of the careers teacher saying, now, Jackie, what do you want to do? And I said, I'm going to be a textile conservator. Then I had to get a relevant degree, which I took in textile design at Leeds University. And when I left university, I had the opportunity to get postgraduate training in textile conservation with the North of England Museum Service. So I had all my conservation training, just like we are the times we're in now with COVID. Things financially were really difficult in the UK. And I'd already met my husband-to-be when I was a student at university. And Mike said to me, oh, look, come on, you're doing all this work for museums. You could do exactly the same for private people. Let's set up a business. So we set up the Textile Restoration Studio in 1982, offering conservation, museum standard conservation work to private people, but to churches, cathedrals, stately homes, all sorts. And... That is really where the business started and we've never looked back. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your goals and methods? The whole aim of conservation is to preserve something in the state it's in and make it safe for the future. And apart from any cleaning, any practical work we do has to be reversible. So most of our work is very fine, delicate stitching Occasionally we might use some adhesives with very fine textiles if we've got to put supports behind and things. But if in the future a better process is developed or the item becomes damaged and they've got to remove what I've done, it can easily be done without harming the textile itself. So any of the items that come into the studio, we spend a lot of time discussing with our clients exactly what their requirements are. But every item is different. And so that's when we work out what we're going to do and how we're going to approach it for the client. Jackie, we'd love to hear about some of the Victorian era pieces you've encountered in your work. Right, we've, well, we've worked on Victorian pieces for years and these can be anything from beautiful garments. They can be from babies' clothes right the way through to women's and men's wear, um, furnishings, hangings, Oh, the list almost becomes endless with all the um, costume accessories and things like that. We've worked a tremendous amount on women's fashion, though, because quite a lot of the museums around where I am here in the north of England have got very, very good costume collections. Um, we have a town called Southport, which is on the seaside, and a lot of people would travel there for the for the beautiful air, would go to Southport, and Lord Street there was the one place which was you, was, you would walk along being very fashionable to be seen. So there were a lot of women who would go there um, in their finery. So the local museum there has collected a lot of costumes and garments that were made by the, the milliners, you know, the hat people and, and all the embroiderers and the uh, garment makers. So they have them relevant to that town. So I've been privileged to work on some gorgeous outfits, you know, with beautiful silk fabrics, very, very intricately made. I, I always marvel at the skills and the 
the pattern matching, and then it's all the, the wealth of trimmings that the Victorians used to put on their clothes. Everything seemed to have little bits of silk fringing on it, fancy buttons, but then beautifully lined inside. Unfortunately, quite a lot of the linings do cause us a lot of problems because they used to use a cream silk fabric, which is called tin-weighted silk, as the lining inside the garments. And for this might be an unusual term for people saying tin-weighted silk, because it was a bit of a, a naughty business that they, um, they used to do. They used to buy cheap cream silk fabric, and then they would soak it in metallic salts to actually increase its weight so you'd think the fabric was a, a heavier weight and a more expensive fabric that's been used for linings. But the metallic salts within them just rot the silk. So as conservators, that causes us a lot of problems. We might have the most beautiful outer silk fabric of a garment, and then you look inside and just find it in shreds inside. So we have to use special adhesive techniques and things like that to hold the linings together. But with a lot of the fabrics, it's, it's difficult for cleaning some of the garments because of the complexity in their actual construction with all their hooks and eyes and all these trimmings. So we actually do our own hand solvent cleaning as well. Um, here in the back of my studio, I had a very large sink made. It's, it's a bit like a long coffin, but it means that I can actually immerse a whole complete garment into solvent and soak it and then bring it out and let the solvent evaporate so I can freshen up items if I can't even wet clean them. Jackie, you're, you're spending a lot of time with these pieces and I'm wondering if you feel a sense of connection with the original makers or perhaps the people who wore these garments that you work on. Oh gosh, every, every item has got a story to tell. Um, I've worked on quite a lot of famous people's clothes and that really gives you a great sense of who they possibly were. I've been privileged to work on some of Charlotte Bronte's items, um, on her going away dress when she got married. It's the outfit that she wore when she went off on her honeymoon to, to Ireland. Um, I'm a great one for listening to the radio while I'm working. So I actually put Jane Eyre on, on the radio as well. So I was listening to something in the background whilst I'm still working away. And you look at the clothes and you, I say you feel very, very privileged to handle something that's been worn by somebody so famous and you just think, oh, I wonder who helped you put that on and did up those little buttons and bits and pieces like that. Uh, that's my little personal bit. I, I, had, I also worked on William Wordsworth's frock coat from Grasmere in the Lake District and that, that needed washing. So I had my hands down the pockets and there was a hole in the pocket. So I thought, right, I'm going right the way around the lining of the coat. You never know, there might be a little bit of paper down there with something on, but there wasn't. But it, it's those sort of things, you know, cleaning his coat and it was very dirty on the back. And I was thinking, oh, William, you know, you've been sitting up in the hills in the Lake District and it's not surprising your coat is so filthy dirty. It's got a hole in the back of it, but... Anyway, it was cleaned and then I repaired all of that um, and also had his silk um, neckerchief to, to clean and, and his table napkin. I'm thinking, well, yes, it's covered in food stains, but, you know, that was what he was eating. That's what he stained, but that protected his clothes. So it's those little personal things. Um, but I think apart from working on famous people's clothes, the other items I've worked on that I feel give you a 
a real tingle up the back is when you're working on Egyptian textiles because they are so old and I've worked on a lot of mummies and you're dealing with human remains in that respect. And to me, that is a another whole complete step away. I know when you're working in the museums, they say you, you mustn't sort of personalise the mummies or anything, but I can't work like that. Um, I had one lovely mummy I worked on and she she'd actually I found a little gold amulet inside her hand she was a Roman mummy so she wasn't completely wrapped all her fingers and her body were all wrapped separately and I called her Mimi out of La Boheme because I talked to the mummies and I'd say to them I hope you don't mind I'm going to have to move your arm I'm going to do, have to move this bit or what have you because I'm dealing with a human being Okay, they may have been dead for thousands and thousands of years, but it's still very, very important to me that you give that right respect to the item that you're working on. Um, so, yes, I do feel quite a, a sense of connection with items that I'm working on in that respect. But feeling, at the same time, feeling very, very privileged that I've got that opportunity to work on them. Jackie, given the time and effort you put into this work, what do you feel that people who, who view the artifacts that you've worked on can learn from looking at them and thinking about them? That's, that's really a, a fascinating question because I find, especially if I go to a museum and I'm walking around and I'm looking at things, I, I'm the worst person to go around an exhibition with because I sort of home in straight away, especially on the damaged parts. But it, it upsets me quite often that you see people walking along and they just walk straight past things and they don't stop and they don't look. So I always find that if I'm I'm out with people, especially if I'm going to an exhibition, I'm going with a friend, I will explain to them what I'm looking at. And suddenly you realize you've got half a dozen other people standing behind you listening. And I think it's something to actually, people need a lot more explanation to understand what things are, to then start really appreciating it. I don't think there's enough information out there for people often to fully appreciate what they're looking at. I think we, we need to step back a bit and give people more information. It's things are getting lost on the actual methods of construction and things like that. I actually think back to some curtains I worked on many years ago for Lord Derby at, at Norsley Hall, which is just on, on the outskirts of Liverpool. And these were cut silk velvet curtains of the early 1800s and they had the most ornate tie backs on them but one pair had been lost so they asked me to make a replica pair and so I had to spend hours trying to work out how they were put together and then sourcing all the little dips, bits, the little buttons, the fringing and all the things that were needed to create these tie backs. I wouldn't be able to do them today because those firms that made the pieces for me then have gone. They don't exist anymore. So we are losing so much. So this is why I think we need more information out there, if possible, for people. That's my personal <laughs> bit. Jackie, you've given us a great deal to think about. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. House museums can be complicated spaces. Preserving and displaying collections of everyday objects 
often in the restored home of a celebrated individual, these museums offer visitors immersive encounters with the history of domestic life. But as visitors to these kinds of spaces know, we sometimes have to look very closely to uncover the stories that these museums have not prioritized, stories of, for example, exploited or marginalized people. We had the chance to speak with Dr. Kyle McPhail, the intern curator of a house museum in central Canada, about their work expanding the storytelling potential of a Victorian house museum. I began by asking Kyle to tell us about Dalnavert Museum and Visitor Centre, the museum where they work. Dalnavert is a small mansion in the heart of Winnipeg. It is just off of Broadway. Um, it is, was the home of Hugh John MacDonald, the son of John A. MacDonald and Hugh John's family, which was his wife, Lady Agnes, his daughter Daisy and son Jack. They moved in in 1895. The land once belonged to a man named Wonsame Falcon, who was a Métis man. He sold the land to Hugh John. So, um, yeah, and it's just a little, it's a stone throw away from the legislature. What has curating at Dalnavert taught you about domestic life in settler colonial Canada in 1895? It's really taught me that there's certainly like several perspectives on history. Everyone's going to have a different perspective. Everyone's going to have a different opinion. People are going to highlight certain things. That's why I usually like saying histories, plural, because it kind of really recognizes that there's a multiplicity of perspectives and voices that are contributing to the stories that we hear. Um, at Dalnavert, every volunteer is going to give you a different version of the story of the house. Some people will highlight kind of more of the colonial aspect, some people might not. Interpretation is all verbal. And there is, aren't labels, aren't panels. Everything you know is going to be told to you, usually via story or highlighting certain objects. So it's kind of really taught me that, you know, these different perspectives and these different voices are going to build a bunch of different stories about a singular space. Thinking about the kinds of stories a museum like this can tell, you recently gave a talk on gender and sexuality at Dalnavert Museum. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, I have a PhD in museum studies and my focus is in queer art histories. So for me, my interest is kind of queer histories, queer art, queer people in history spaces, heritage spaces. I find that a lot of museums don't like to talk about this. They will erase it, they'll talk around it. They kind of will say that these aspects of history are unimportant. One of my favorite books is um, Epistemologies of the Closet by Eve Kavosky Sedgwick. And she has this quote where she talks about, well, people often respond to questions of why isn't there queer histories in this space to what's the interpretive consequences of having this you know histories in the space but what is the interpretive consequences of not having these histories in these spaces and I think that when you don't talk about queer histories you often are telling a version of history where there aren't queer people or their contributions don't matter or that part of their personality doesn't matter, but when it's a straight person or a cishet person, it does. And there's like a lot of importance to representation. It's important to see yourself represented in these spaces. So to completely ignore a whole community of people, communities, plural of people, you know, it doesn't seem like it, you're really doing history justice. So I think it's really important to tell histories of gender and sexuality in historic spaces. 
Kyle, you gave this lecture virtually, not to a crowd at the museum, but you gave a, a tour to, to the attendees of your lecture. And you took up some of the artifacts at the museum that could easily be understood as having no relationship to histories of identity or sexuality. Could you give us an example of one of the ways you read or reread uh, those artifacts to find those histories? Yeah, that's the thing that's interesting about queer histories is it's, you know, blink and you miss it. Because uh, it is just like everyday objects. It's like in plain sight. And if you kind of are part of the community, you have that eye and you have that, I guess, background where you can read these objects as potentially being queer. They might not be, but then they also might. It's kind of like when you see someone in the street and you kind of give them that look and you're like, oh, are they... <laughs> And sometimes you'll give each other that nod and you just know. And it's kind of the same with objects in a museum. You kind of look at it and you might just know. There's a lot of, you know, big part of uh, queer histories is this kind of secrecy and kind of trying to communicate with each other via like symbols or kind of colors and things like that. So it is kind of interesting to go through the house and have this almost like museological gaydar and picking out these objects. One that really... When I first walked in the house and saw it, I went, oh, okay, there we go, is at the bottom of the stairs, there's like an eagle. And it reminds me of Ganymede, the story of Ganymede, where there was the uh, Jove or um, Zeus disguised himself as an eagle because he fell in love with the shepherd named Ganymede and he wanted him to be his lover. So he turned himself into an eagle and kidnapped Ganymede and took him. And he, you know, he was his lover and was his cupbearer. And so it kind of, it was this symbol for queer relationships for a long time. In the Renaissance, if someone said, you know, Ganymede, they knew it was code for they were gay. And a lot of queer artists from histories would, you know, depict Ganymede. So when I saw that, I went, oh, here's like kind of a little bit of what potentially could be queer histories. Could just be an eagle. But there's also people who would see that and go, is that Ganymede? Like, is that related to the story of Ganymede? In the Victorian era, they kind of backed off from that. They started retelling the story, so he kidnapped him rather than kidnapped him to be his lover. So the Victorians kind of erased some of that queer histories, which wasn't, you know, very typical at the time. Kyle, you've been drawing our attention to a, a wall decoration, but it's sometimes hard to notice individual objects in a house museum. The, the recreation of domestic life, it can be very immersive, but it also means that individual artifacts can kind of get lost in the shuffle because their, their in situ display can be, can be a little bit overwhelming. Are there artifacts in the collection at Dalnavert that, that you've fallen in love with in your time there that, that really stand out for you? Yeah, it's the one thing with the house is that you put everything out you have everything out so yeah these little things just get lost and or you kind of forget that they're there i certainly have a few favorite things again some of them are kind of related to the lecture i gave like there's that beautiful art nouveau style lamp that's on the staircase as you go up and it's kind of this like nymph fairy figure and she's holding a flower but the flower actually has a light bulb in it and um to me it's very camp because camp is something that's exaggerated or um you know, it's supposed to be one thing, but it's actually another. So it looks like a flower, but it's actually a lamp. So I always look at that, and I really love that. Um, I also really like the wallpaper in the dining room, and it's just really bright, poisony kind of arsenic green, and it looks really like I just I think it's a really nice color. You don't see green a lot um, in houses nowadays, so it's kind of just kind of calls back to like the Victorian fascination with 
chemicals and colors. So yeah, the, the green wallpaper is one of my favorites. Speaking of color and Victorians in color, there's an exhibit currently on at the museum, Dalnavert in Color, which you curated, Kyle. Can you tell us about it? Sure, yeah, I, I mean, I love color. So it was kind of obvious for me if I was gonna curate an exhibition that I would focus on color. It, I thought it was kind of funny because I was teaching a class, like an art history class, and I was setting up this lecture and we were talking about the Byzantine Empire and the art in the Byzantine Empire and Tyrian purple comes up. And Tyrian purple was extremely rare, it's extremely expensive. Um, it took like, it kind of come, came from these like mollusks and it would take like thousands of them to make just a little bit of this dye. So only like the richest of the rich had it. And so we were looking at some artworks that had um, the Empress Theodora wearing Tyrian purple. And I thought, my class is going to love this. They're going to love me talking about color. And so I go to my lecture and I start talking about purple and it just blank faces. Like they do not care. So then I went to work, I think the next day and I was just like, they didn't care about my purple lecture. And everyone there was like, oh, color is so interesting. And I thought that could be like a really interesting exhibition looking at color through a Victorian perspective, since purple, for example, um, was one of the first synthetic colors that was discovered during the Industrial Revolution. So the Victorians were quite enamored with a lot of these synthetic colors, including purple. Purple didn't make it into the exhibition. We just didn't have enough objects in the house that would fit purple. But um, so that was kind of how that idea came about was, um, you know, my class not being interested at all in purple. <laughs> yeah, 19th century scientists were really discovering quite quickly a lot of these colors, which I thought was very interesting, um, which fits very well into purple. It was actually, well, it was mauve specifically was discovered. It was 1853 and it was Willem Perkin. He was only 18 years old and he was doing um, experiments and he was trying to find the cure for malaria and he ended up coming up with this kind of mauve color. So it's just interesting that a lot of these colors actually were discovered accidentally and then they were incorporated into art and fashion, everything that the Victorians really loved. Given that Dalnavert was built in 1895 uh, in the late Victorian period, we'd be remiss if we didn't chat about yellow, Kyle. Can you talk about the yellow objects? Sure. Yellow is one of those colors that is rebellious. And we don't think of it today as a necessarily rebellious color, but back then it was, and even like in previous decades, it was kind of a bit of a rebellious color. Protestants didn't like really bright colors. So for them, yellow was an absolute no-no. So having yellow on anything was very like you these people they're being so showy with their yellow um and then the people did relate it to also um like yellow back books which were cheap books that you'd buy in railway stations i would kind of equate them now to the german crimmies you know you basically read it once and then you <laughs> toss it out or give it away um and so they were kind of very sensational tales which was very like anti-victorian so they weren't these morality tales it was sensational and this kind of also relates into aestheticism and a yellow was very popular in aestheticism which was an art movement that rejected any story or it rejected any sort of you know morality tale and it was just art for the sake of art it was just beautiful so i feel like that really fits into delnavert as well because it's aesthetic objects. You don't really necessarily hear the mor morality tale behind the objects, you just look at them, which is exactly what the aesthetic movement would have wanted. So a lot of these aestheticism artists 
incorporated yellow into their designs, which also kind of relates to Oscar Wilde as well, because he was a big follower of the aestheticism movement. Kyle, one of the things I'd like to note about your exhibit is the way that you've selected objects from the house, which has a, a very significant collection of over 6,000 objects. And then you've grouped them together and displayed them in the visitor center, which really allows for a kind of different way of looking or, or understanding. Yeah, I think it's really interesting with these objects because in the context of the house, the color probably doesn't stand out as much as it does out of the house. But these objects you never would have looked at, you know, under a light in an exhibition space in a cabinet. You would have looked at it in a house with a million other objects around it in that Victorian lighting. So it's quite dark against usually dark wallpaper. So I think it's interesting to take them out of the context sometimes. I mean, it's important to study them within the context. But when you're thinking about color, to remove them out of the context where there's going to be a lot of reds and blues and beiges and browns and then suddenly highlight that this is a pink object or this is a yellow object it kind of changes your perspective on it i think that i thought with especially the yellow i look at more of the yellow colors than i would when it was in the house in the house the yellow doesn't stand out as much but in the case the yellow stands out quite a bit and same with the pink there's actually a lot more pink in the house than i initially thought until we put it in the case so uh, but these colors aren't necessarily highlighted in the same way when they're in the house and the way they're exhibited definitely changes the way you look at the color for sure. Kyle, you've given us a lot to think about about the histories that a house museum can share. You've given us a lot to think about in terms of color and the Victorians. And I think you've also helped us to think about how we can look differently at Victorian domestic spaces. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you to Heather, Jackie, and Kyle for their contributions to this episode. To learn more about the topics explored by our guests, please visit the Crafting Communities website, craftingcommunities.net. You'll find links to suggested readings and resources, as well as a link to a fabulous virtual tour of Dalnavert Museum that you can take from the comfort of your home. Thank you to Jesse Cron and to Anne Hung for their work on this episode. Thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for the transcript and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvit.ca and follow us on Twitter at Crafty Victorian. We look forward to sharing a new episode of Victorian Samplings with you soon. <laughs>